Good afternoon, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 106. We are continuing our journey through the Advent season, that season that for four weeks leads up to Christmas. Uh, This year in 2022 is kind of a fun year because Christmas actually falls on a Sunday. And so uh, there are four weeks of Advent and that last Sunday is Christmas Sunday. It's the, uh, I'm sorry, it's it's the, the last day before Christmas is the last day in Advent. The, the first day of the Christmas season is actually December 25th uh, this year. So it's it's the four Sundays previous to the 25th and ends perfectly with the beginning of Christmas. And it's, it's quite a celebration. Advent is, of course, the word from which we get our English word adventure. Uh, adventure is journeying into something new. Advent is something new. Something new is coming. And this season of preparing for Christmas gives us the chance to to prepare, to focus on what it is to expect Christ to come, even again. And it, it really is, I think, a great season of, of kind of preparing our hearts for the reality of Christmas and, and warming up. So it, it's it's kind of the the Christian way of accomplishing the things that have become kind of trite little sayings that I see printed on trinkets and ornaments this time of year that say things like, keep Christ in Christmas. And, and I understand that there's something to that against the, the commercialism and the secularism that the Christmas shopping season has taken on. It, it bothers me too when I get to, to the store at the end of September and they're already putting up the Christmas aisles and the Christmas trees and the ornaments and the lights for sale. And, and by the middle of October, we're seeing all of the online Black Friday and October sales. It's become crazy. Uh, I just read that November retail sales this year are lower than expected. And one of the reasons given was that so many retail outlets had Christmas sales back in October. Well, it all gets crazy, right? And, And it becomes a measure of the economy, not a measure of the season or or of our hearts, the the time doesn't get marked in the same way. And so Advent gives the Christian a way to focus on marking the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, typically, in a way that draws our thoughts towards the event of Christmas, toward the manger, towards Bethlehem, towards that holy night when Christ came to be with us. So it's a, it's a season that for a lifetime I have greatly enjoyed, at least since my early 20s. 
And so I wanted to share it with you in the podcast this year and just kind of visit the ideas of Advent that I have found most captivating uh, throughout my ministry. And tonight I want to share with you one of those really significant scriptures that comes from Isaiah chapter 11. And it starts right in verse 1. The prophecy begins, Isaiah 11, 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his root, a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This passage has often been uh, said to contain the seven spirits of God. And I don't think that's totally wrong. Um, It's a little hard to discern the seven. Six are clear. The verse two says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, the fear of the Lord. And the seventh, some people have said, well, the seventh is the spirit of the Lord. But that's not what the scripture says. It says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then there's like a a colon or a big hyphen. This is the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Delight is the seventh attribute that's not mentioned in the rest of the verse. And, and I don't think we talk about delight enough as part of God's nature. But at each place that God pauses in creation in the very first chapter of the Bible, and God saw that it was good. He delighted in the fact that the creation was good, that it was complete, that it was more than adequate, right? And and on the third day, it says, and God saw that it was really good. The Hebrew says doubly good. So God has this sense of delight, real delight in, in his creation, in his people, in his relationship with his people, in the things that go the way God designed them to go. And it was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. Pleasing. In order to be pleased, he has to find delight in it, right? So when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, as he comes up out of the water, people there at the event see the Spirit of God descending on him like a bird alighting. And they hear a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am delighted. Well pleased, right? That's delight. In whom I am delighted. So this delight is part of the nature and spirit of God that is then expressed in and experienced by others in the coming Messiah. It's an expectancy that he will come and express the delight of God in the world that he's created. He's not just coming 
to judge. He's not coming just to correct. He's not just coming to rule. He's coming to express the nature of God. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Like that bird, like that that image. It wasn't a real dove. It, it was like a dove. Like that bird just came and lit upon him and rested there. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. Now it's interesting to me that these are in in duplets. They're in pairs. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. Because without wisdom, you can't understand. Wisdom isn't just knowledge. That comes a little later. Wisdom is something different than knowledge. Wisdom is discernment. Wisdom is the ability to see and grasp in detail what's happening even when others don't see it. It's catching the nuance. It's reading the room. And I know people who who read rooms so well, it's almost spooky. And there are people who've said that it's a talent that I have, that I can sit at a table and read the people around the table. In fact, I've been hired to jobs before where I was told, I've hired you so that you'll come into the meetings with me and you'll tell me who's being real and and who's putting up a front. I've been called into business meetings where my manager or my supervisor or my boss said, I need you in this meeting to tell me who's telling us the truth. And, And that's not magic. That's wisdom. That's having been in front of so many people so many times and experienced so many different personalities, seeing all the games that people play, understanding what people are motivated by, and being able to kind of discern what's up with a person's presentation, their request, their their sell, whatever it is they're doing. And, and it comes from a variety of things, time, experience, um, interpersonal relationships, value systems, and, and it's something that kind of chooses you. You don't really choose wisdom. You choose learning. You choose experiences. You choose the people that you hang out with. The Bible says we grow wise by walking with the wise. And that's really true. Wisdom is something that kind of chooses us because we've put ourselves in the place where it can. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding because the truly understanding person is a wise person. And a wise person is a truly understanding person. I don't know any wise people who don't understand others. And I don't know anyone who understands other people and isn't wise. Um, There are people who could be wise, who could understand if they were more patient, but they lack that maturity in their wisdom to be patient, and so they miss things. And And they jump with their words or they jump with their actions when if they would lean a little bit more into their wisdom and understanding, 
they would treat people better. They'd make better decisions. They would be more useful in interpersonal ways. And, and that can happen to anybody. It isn't just a mark of immaturity or a mark of a lack of wisdom. Sometimes it's just being tired or hungry or not having some, some immediate need met or being too much in a hurry. I know really wise people who are really good with others, who truly can understand, who who get frustrated in traffic and and may commit some acts that aren't that wise or understanding, right? They might use some sign language that does not belie their wisdom. Well, that can happen to anybody. But the person who experiences the nature of God will be increasingly wise and understanding. The next phrase says, the spirit of counsel and of might. This is an interesting duplet here. The spirit of counsel is is pretty easy to understand. It's a person who gives and accepts counsel. It continues the last duplet. A person who is wise and understanding is also a person who gives and receives counsel freely. If I don't listen to other people, I'm not a wise person. If I don't accept counsel and and examine myself constantly to see how that counsel might apply to me, I'll never have understanding or wisdom, you see? But the person with wisdom and understanding makes a great counselor. I, I marvel at our school counselors, both those who are behavioral counselors and those who are psychological counselors. Their level of wisdom and understanding about the needs and the situations, the circumstances, the actions, the psychology of kids is absolutely remarkable. I marvel at really good clinical counselors. I, I once saw a counselor who, who knew me inside out after we talked only three or four times. And he could instantly put his finger on what I was struggling with and what I needed to do to gain understanding and a grip on those things. And it was the most remarkable experience of my life. I had been before that time kind of motivated to think that counselors were psychobabble, um, kind of a waste of time, that each one had his own program, her own program, and they tried to cookie-cutter apply it, boilerplate it on to whatever person or issue they saw. And I'm sure there are counselors who are like that, but then I encountered really sharp, capable counselors who could give and accept and reason you through the best counsel. And if you ask them a question, they gave you a true answer. You may not have thought at the time it was the right answer, but it was the true answer. And it was true to their person and true to your nature. And those counselors are invaluable. Too many people are surrounded by friends who aren't wise counselors and who say, oh, 
honey, whatever makes you happy, that's not wise counsel. If you're if you're sticking around with people who constantly say, whatever you want to do, whatever makes you happy, oh, just do what makes you happy. Those people are not giving you wise counsel. The Bible says there's a way that might seem right to a man or a woman, the ends of which is death. The destination of that path is destruction. That's not the way you should go. And if your friends aren't friendly enough, they don't love you enough to get in your path and say, friend, that's not the right path, then they're not really very good friends. A person who's godly has a spirit of being able to give and receive the best counsel and of might. Interesting that might is is doubled up with counsel. Because a person who is not wise and has not understanding and won't give and receive wise counsel isn't really very mighty. They might be strong. They might have a strong personality. They might have a strong odor. (laughs) They might speak strong words. But they don't have real might. They don't have real strength. They could be a puppet and have political power, but not real might. Real might is easily seen by others as wisdom, understanding, and the ability to give and receive good counsel. Then you have real strength. Then you have real strength. The Pharisees gathered and talked about Jesus. And and some of them questioned whether or not he was actually the Messiah, whether he'd actually come from God. And one of the wise among them said, hold on, brothers. Could he do the things we see if he didn't come from God? See, his true power was absolutely obvious. And when he was gone and his disciples took over that earthly ministry, the Bible says at one point, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Are these not simple Galileans? And yet look at what they're doing. They had true power. They had real might because they'd been with Jesus and they had taken on the spirit of the Lord. The last duplet is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It doesn't say knowledge of the Lord and fear of the Lord. It says the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It isn't just knowing God. It's knowing everything. It's knowing enough to know you don't know everything, but you know a lot and thirsting for more knowledge, unafraid to learn, unafraid to to experience new things, unafraid to experiment and to try and, and to lean into experiences at which you could fail. But failure is knowledge. 
Thomas Edison's workshop, his, his entire production facility burned down in Orange, New Jersey. And a, and a reporter who was nearby said, Mr. Edison, aren't you distressed that your whole thing, your whole operation just burned to the ground? Edison said, no, not really. Now I'll have to try new things. <laughs> now I'll have to try new things. All of his notes, all of his experiments, all of his projects burned to the ground. And Edison's response was, well, now I have to learn new stuff. That's the spirit of knowledge, of learning, of gathering information so that the more I know about the world that God created, the more I know about him. Even Albert Einstein, who was said to be an atheist, when he was asked why he pursued science so vehemently, why this pursuit of the molecular was so important to him, said something to the effect of, you know, I hope that in the in the study that I do, if I get deep enough into the way the world is made, I will see the fingerprint of the creator. That's Einstein. The pursuit of knowledge is the, is the pursuit of knowing God because he made everything from which we can gain knowledge and about which we can learn. The more we know, the more we ought to know God. It's a farce that people pretend to be learned and purport to be atheists. That means they don't know very much. Or they would be skeptics. You see, the truly learned person understands he only knows a tiny bit of everything there is to learn. And he becomes skeptical about everything. And he leaves room for other solutions and other science and other discoveries and other theories. And God. That would be the true academic the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Fear here means respect. It means leaving room for God to be God, not trampling along through that which should be considered holy. The Jewish people have an interesting custom, an interesting religious practice. They will not say the name of God. He has a name, they're the ones who defined his name. And it means, I am. It's articulated in four letters in their alphabet. And each one of them is an aspirated consonant. Y-H-W-H in English letters. There's no, there's no vowel sounds to them. They are aspirated consonants. When we ask our elementary kids, what does Y say? They say, yeah. But it, it doesn't say, yeah, because Y doesn't include the A-H sound after it. The word young isn't ya-ung. Y just says, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's an aspirated consonant. H doesn't say, ha. Huh because there's no U-H after it. The word high is not ha-I, it's high. 
The H just makes the sound. W isn't wah because there's no UH sound after the W. The word word isn't wa-erd, it's word. And the W only makes the wah, right? So this name for God in Hebrew is these four aspirated consonants. And it seems counterintuitive that God's name could just be air until you realize so much of the Old Testament concept of God is this concept of the one who is the air, the wind, the breath. The ruach is the Hebrew word. The ruach of God. The breath into which he, which he breathes into everything to give it life. And when Elijah has outrun God's grace in his life, done things God didn't ask him to do, and as a result has overrun God's providence, realizes he's out on his own, gets afraid of Jezebel taking his life, and runs out into the desert until he can run no further, lays down under a bush, and says, oh God, kill me now, I don't deserve to live. God says, Elijah, what are you doing out here? You you have forgotten where to find me. You thought I was in that fire falling from the sky on Mount Carmel. Dude, you've lost your way. Stand over there. I'm going to pass by and remind you who I am. And the Bible says, there's a mighty wind. Now look at the difference at the beginning and the end. The first thing and the last thing. There's a mighty wind. But the Lord wasn't in the mighty wind. And then there's a huge earthquake. It just breaks the rocks into pebbles all around Elijah. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there's a fire like the one that fell from heaven, a fire so intense it melts rocks. It vaporizes things. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there came a tiny whisper. An almost imperceptible whisper. And in that almost imperceptible whisper was the Lord. See? To know and to respect the Lord to the Jews is to not even speak his name. And so as you read through the Old Testament scripture, you'll see many, many places where it says, and they stood and they called upon And there is in the Hebrew text his name, but the Jews won't say it. And so the person who wrote the scripture down, who scribed it out, says the name of the Lord. And they called upon the name of the Lord. It's there. They won't say it. The name of the Lord shall be praised from the morning to the setting of the sun. It's there. Those four lines that spell those four aspirated consonants. It's there. They won't say it. They replace his name with 
the phrase, the name of the Lord. They respect him too much. It's not that they're afraid that he'll strike them with lightning. The fear of the Lord for them is respect. It's not trampling like a, an oaf across the things that are supposed to be godly. In our culture, I've grown up hearing that there's one way to take the Lord's name in vain, and that's to use it as a profanity. But that's taking the Lord's name as profanity. That's not taking it in vain. What's vanity? Vain is to do something out of vanity. What's vanity? Vanity is to is to seek to accomplish my own purposes regardless of what it does to somebody else. To make myself look good regardless of how it affects other people. Vanity is to stick a fish on the back of my car to tell everybody what a great Christian I am. But if I get stuck in traffic or they cut me off, I show them the Hawaiian peace sign. Then the fish on the back of my car doesn't mean much. It's only there for vanity. I have taken the name of Christ. I have taken the name of God. I'm a Christian. I'm a godly person. I've claimed to know God and and claimed to belong to him, taken his name as though we were married. And yet I live in self-promotion, in self-justification. I don't respect or fear God because I trample across what's his without even a second thought. Make sense? The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him and all those who follow him and all those who will ever call themselves his. This is what a godly person is like too. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and real power. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in respecting that which is God's, in honoring that which is God's. That will be his delight. That will be the joy that he brings into the world. There's this this series of made-for-TV films, specials, that I think we're in season three now. It's called The Chosen. And a lot of my friends are talking about the way that Jesus is portrayed in The Chosen because he's often kind of flippant, kind of silly. And it's interesting because they sometimes put 21st century words in the mouth of this Jesus character they're portraying. He, in the, in the first or second season, he cracks a joke with his disciples about something they've been through earlier in the day. And they look at him kind of funny and he says, what, too soon? Well, that's a 21st century kind of thing, right? We're the ones who joke about something that's happened recently that's kind of cheeky and say, what, too soon? That's what we say. Jesus wouldn't have said that ever. But they put those words in his mouth because it's a way that we can all relate to that that mildly sarcastic kind of response. That slightly poorly timed bit of humor. 
that was poorly timed on purpose. And they portrayed Jesus as this guy who's not afraid to laugh, who's not afraid to love, who's not afraid to live his life to the fullest and delight in it. A man who finds delight in wisdom and counsel and understanding and might and knowledge and walking in respect for God. In this season of Advent, I pray that you and I might know the Spirit of God in these terms. And that if we lack any of these things, we might go to God and ask Him. The Bible says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of the Father who gives freely. I think He gives all of these things freely. If we lack in any of these things, in these days leading up to Christmas, to the coming of Christ again, might we just take a few moments and focus on them and ask God to make up in us that which we lack. Amen.